Architecture doesn't exist in a vacuum and neither should you. Whether it's a design critique or understanding how design connects to a larger world, gaining insight is invaluable for architecture students. Well, actually, all students in general. In these interview sessions, guests from professors to professionals and everyone in between will share their experiences and thoughts on design and the built environment. In this episode, I'm joined by one of the first faculty members that I've encountered at Ryerson back in the day. It was funny, when I first got my job phone call, I got introduced by Kendra Shank-Smith, the chair at the time, and then she said, and I want to introduce you to this guy I know called Professor Al Smith, and you're going to be teaching with him in first year. And over a decade later, Al, you and I were hanging out. Uh, I'm not doing first year this term, though. I'm not going to be doing first year this fall. But I want to introduce everyone. Many of you guys have had Al as your prof. Many of you guys have Al in fourth year electives or even as graduate supervisor. But I am glad to say that today we've got Al Smith joining us. And welcome to the show, Al. Man, hello. How are you? Yes, I remember uh, meeting you. Uh, You know, it's kind of interesting when you meet uh, potential candidates for faculty, you can tell pretty quickly who's going to fit in. And, uh, you know, not being, uh, um, I'll, I'll say that I, I thought you were going to do fine. And uh, um, Fine? Come really, on, man. Don't give great. I think uh, um, I'm really happy to have you as a colleague. Oh, thanks, man. Al, that makes me feel warm and fuzzy inside, like I've actually deserved that comment. But, but thanks. So, but, but the thing was, it was crazy because I remember getting that phone call from, you know, from Kendra just telling me, hey, you got the job and also uh, you can be working with them. And this was when I was at, I, I wasn't at home. I was, I was uh, just uh, making dinner with, with, at that time, my wife, or I'm sorry, my girlfriend. And uh, it was just like getting totally caught off guard. And you're like, hey, let's talk about studio. And I was like, whoa, where do we start, right? I don't think I actually ended up going to the dinner table because I was just talking to you about all the fun stuff that I thought. And I think you were just rolling your eyes going, yeah, 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 whatever. Just just get off the phone, man. So thank you for your patience, uh, not only then, but also throughout. So let's talk this through, man. We all know, um, so those of you guys that are not aware, and some of you guys, we have, we have listenership from uh, the high schools and we have them from around the world. So Al is a pretty big name. He's taught around the world um, across multiple institutions and for decades, generations of architects have sat under his uh, wise wings of wisdom. So Al, do you care to tell us where'd you start and how did you wind up at Ryerson, man? Well, um, <laughs> I was born. <laughs> well, uh, you, well, I mean, but, uh, <laughs> um, you know, I originally uh, um, thought I was going into the military because my father and uh, all my relatives were in it. and uh, But at the end of military school for four years, I said, good Lord, no more of this. I hate it. <laughs> um, and decided, I don't know what I'm going to do. So off I went to just a liberal arts college, which was a great deal of fun after military school. Um, but you start off in uh, drifting around in majors. I started off in English, which I was not particularly good at and uh, um, was quite bored. But a few weeks into it, I met this girl who said, why don't you come over and try art? I really like it. Uh, um, so I went over and took a few art courses and really got into it. Uh, they did have a side um, um, study in design, which I absolutely loved. Uh, the girl, of course, was Kendra. Um, I met her <laughs> my freshman year. Um, she did dating my roommate who failed out of school with a 0.0 average, not good. Wait, 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 wait. This is something I did not know. Wait, wait. Kendra was not with you first? She was with your roommate? My, wait, what? Kendra was dating my roommate. So, oh. uh, he failed out with a 0.0 average I inherited. Kendra. Uh, did you make something happen? Or like, like that that that's uh, that sounds like a little bit of a yeah. You know, I mean, this is 1970 in college. Everybody was having a marvelous time, but class wasn't <laughs> on the list for some. <laughs> uh, didn't go. Okay, 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 cool, cool. So you had nothing to do with that that guy getting uh, tossed out, but so you then kind of moved along with Kendra along and just decided to pair up and do every single course together. Or what happened exactly? Um. Actually, so we went through uh, art for a couple of years, um, and uh, I wanted to get into design. I found there was a very, very good design school down in southern Illinois at the time. Uh, a bunch of the Black Mountain guys and um, Bucky Fuller had uh, set it up down in Carbondale. Um, so I decided to go down there and kind of followed along. We were uh, getting along great and had a very, very fine art school, too. So uh, we did our undergraduate. Um, Went to work for a little while. I was doing social work um, all over 
and um, then decide, well, you know, I really like design. Let's go back and do some more design. But what are we going to get into, particularly? And we decided architecture. So we went into architecture school together. Um, our interview was pretty interesting. Uh, went down and uh, talked to the faculty. And I later learned, you know, they weren't so, they liked our work, but they were really fascinated that we were a married couple. We um, married back then. Okay, okay. We were. Mm -hmm. And so they, uh, wondered if uh, we were going to become divorced. You know, it, this was a time when women in architecture were just sort of drifted in and they were quite used to that and the married couple was very confusing. Mm. So they were fascinated by this. So, so wait, wait, Al, then I'm just curious because there are, there are two things that just kind of struck me. A, that you guys just, that you, I, did, I didn't know, I thought it was a mutual decision that you guys went, I didn't know that Al took the lead and, and Kendra just kind of went in tow. And then the second thing was, Yo, social work, dude. What, what, what? You, you kind of. I, I know that you had mentioned this to me before. I knew about this kind of social work thing, but can you just tell everyone? Because I don't think anyone knows some of this. Some of these, like you know, insider tips uh, and and you know, bits of information about our. Well, our when I was prompts. doing uh, um, my undergraduate in design, um, we were doing the advanced uh, final project, and uh, I got to working with the Illinois migrant workers, uh, mm. hundred thousand, hundred fifty thousand. Migrant workers would come up through the Midwest. Um, and, you know, most people don't realize it, but if we don't have migrant workers in the United States uh, coming through, and many of them, yeah, are probably illegal. Uh, uh, the agricultural business uh, collapses. Collapses. And so um, one of the, uh, we had a huge uh, um, um, problem in Illinois uh, with medical, trying to get uh, uh, medical clinic. So we set up, and as my senior project, we set, built and set up a series of mobile uh, health clinics running all over uh, Illinois to mm -hmm. service migrant workers. Hmm. And then, and then you ba you basically were like uh, clinically like engaging people. Were you like I, I'm I'm just I, I think it'd be worth explaining well, a little what bit. What we did was we uh, actually built the clinics, got them on the road. Um, developed uh, the, the medical system uh, and you know that was our what we did as designers hmm. so the migrant workers are fascinated with this and say hey would you like to come down and work for us for a little while um, um, it was at a time when the u.s economy was in recession so there was mm -hmm. no work for anybody yeah. and i said yeah sure great i went hmm. down to the um, um, Migrant Reception Center uh, for all these hundred thousand would come through and get services from the U.S. government down mm -hmm. in Cairo, Illinois. Uh, where, where is that exactly? Like, out, give, give me, give the me. Bottom of the state where the Ohio and the Mississippi come together. It's this little town uh, surrounded by levees, um, and it had at the time uh, the most racial difficulties in the country. Oh, really? Uh, like, yeah. Uh, uh, oh, I, I went down there, and the migrant uh, council was just out of town, uh, but we were all kind of involved with the uh, action that was going on. On a good night, a thousand rounds of ammo would go off shooting at each other. In Illinois, Kendra, huh? Yeah, I took Kendra down there. I showed her the police station and the school buses and things like that. Um, there were stitch marks of machine gun bullets all over the place. So he that was, was uh, that's called date night. <laughs> that was date night. Um, I I actually uh, met nice. Um, you know, there were a lot of very nice people there, but I talked to this wonderful black woman who said, "Yeah, I had to sleep in my apartment in the bathtub every night because the bullets coming through." Oh yeah, that's rough, man. So just let's 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 move forward though, because since you've started the whole entire discussion of like uh, teaching in in different parts in, in like you know under underserviced and underprivileged areas, uh, let's talk about your teaching history though. So you went and you you started your PhD, and um, I don't want to well, jump I, out. I started uh, um, actually teaching with a master's degree. I'd been working for okay. Kevin Roshan Dinkaloo Associates. Um, and there was a time when he just won the Pritzker, so he was a big, hot mm -hmm. um, office to come from. And um, Kendra, because she uh, had a degree in education, was very interested in getting into education. So uh, she said, you know, maybe we should go teach architecture. And uh, I thought this was a great idea. Now, getting a job together as a husband and wife is not easy. Mm -hmm. But we've been able to pull it off. Um, and we... Um, 
you know, you get uh, job offers. Uh, I remember one, I was sitting in the office and they said, uh, yeah, we give you a tenure job offer, but you got to start in two days. It was in Idaho. Oh, wait, wait, which university? Moscow, University of Idaho. Oh, okay. And there was no way we were going to drive out there in two days. Um, but finally, um, we got one at um, Texas A&M University. Mm-hmm. And, uh, huge architecture school. Um, many people don't realize it's one of the biggest in the country. And uh, we started there. Taught there for about three years. Uh, but, you know, pretty quickly, if you're down in that area, you either you know, going to settle in, dig your pool, stay mm-hmm. there, or, uh, you know, you're going to claw your way out. <laughs> it's East Texas. And uh, think of a school that's the absolute opposite of Ryerson. Um, well, I, I remember you telling me stories about uh, conceal and, uh, what is it, uh, you're able to conceal, hold conceal arms in, in studio reviews? Oh, <laughs> Uh, that, oh, well, that was uh, when I was teaching in Utah, where the uh, state legislator um, demanded that the students be able to carry concealed weapons on campus. Yeah, so that's the one big difference I could see between American and Ryerson reviews. Our students might, you know, have some hood cred or street cred, uh, but uh, they don't bring in hot firearms. And yeah, I always thought it was a bad idea if the students spend them up for three or four days in a row, and you're you're making a few comments about their work. Maybe this could be better. That could be better. Their arms. Um, so, their guns. so, 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 wait, wait. So you're in Texas, and then like, because, because now we're starting. To, so at te- once so Texas. Te- yeah, yeah, sure. I started off in Texas uh, teaching. We were there for three years, um, and we really liked the education, but we didn't necessarily want to stay in Texas uh, at that school. So. Um, we sat down and said, well, what do we do? And so we decided we'd drive around the country during the summer break and visit schools and talk to the deans and see what, uh, um, where things were going, uh, what was going on, uh, where directions of schools were going, mm-hmm. look at their first years. Um, and one of the key things we found as we would hit, and we went to maybe about 30 or 40 schools. To Holy crap. Deans and got to know them and say, hey, listen, we're just traveling around. I want to find out about what's going on, where trends are, is that um, they were going towards a PhD, mm-hmm. slowly um, dragging their feet, so they, but they knew that they were heading that direction because uh, schools were becoming research-orientated and uh, they knew that that advanced degree uh, was becoming more and more important. Right. So at that point, we said, well, you know, maybe um, we should do this. And uh, we looked around the country uh, for PhD programs. At that time, there were 11. So um, about half of them were, uh, um, you know, in areas that were hard science or uh, environmental behavioralism, areas that we weren't interested in. Uh, but there were three or four that were uh, fascinating and uh, um, had some very interesting things going on. Um, so we applied. And the one that uh, came through and had the most interesting and gave us uh, a, a great package was uh, Georgia Tech. Mm. Georgia Tech was starting up its new program. It was the most competitive PhD program in the country to get into. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, um, it was a hotbed of uh, theory at the point time. And mm-hmm. I wanted to get into that. And one thing you learn uh, if you want to become a PhD student, remember this one, um, is you need to pick a really great advisor. And they had somebody <laughs> that I truly wanted to work with, uh, named Marco Viscari. Uh, brilliant uh, advisor. He, interestingly enough, had probably uh, ended up being on the committee for maybe a third to a half of all the PhDs in theory that's graduated. Uh, at the time, so mm-hmm. the guy was everywhere. Yeah, and um, we went and talked to him, hit it off. Um, the package they gave us was phenomenal. We both got to teach full time, um, which I don't recommend working full time and uh, doing a PhD. It's a it's a killer. Uh, <laughs> anybody will tell you. Um, but the program was good. Very interesting people. Very so- interesting stuff going on. So, so just, just to put things in perspective, though, how many PhDs were there at that point in time? At uh, Georgia Tech? Yeah, yeah. Um, class would probably be about 11. 
uh, at a time. Um, there were three classes because you go through classes for a number of years. Um, so there are probably about 30 guys there. Okay. Okay. 25 maybe. So then that we starts to come pretty well. Okay. Okay. And then I guess that all of those basically became profs <laughs> um, that, that we know now um, are overseeing school programs around the world. But you guys didn't stay just over down there. Like I'm, I'm getting this trend. So if I were plotting this map out, like if you look at where Texas is and you go to, you know, Georgia, right? Um, mm-hmm. You like hot places, but then you don't, you don't stay hot. You go somewhere else. Because I know, I know Georgia in the summer is gross. I know Texas in the summer is gross. But then you guys up and left and went to where next? Uh, let's see. Where did we head out for next? Was it Virginia or Utah? No. Um, let's see. Or uh, Buffalo. Okay. Uh, Buffalo, New York. Yeah, okay. Uh, Kendra was setting up a new school at uh, um, um, Southern Tech. And uh, which later became Kennesaw State University, is it, it consolidated with two universities. So she uh, was on the foundation of that school. Uh, we both needed to find eight jobs together, and uh, um, we went up and taught at um, State University of New York at Buffalo mm-hmm. um, on a short term contract. We were there for a couple of years. Um, interesting group, but they were a little dysfunctional uh, at the time. Um, Bounced over to Minnesota, which I liked a lot. Interesting school. Uh, and then, uh, um, but they, they weren't in a position to hire uh, for long term. And, mm-hmm. But um, did get a position at the University of Utah. Right. And that's where we met where up. We in for about 10 years, seven years. Yep. And we know a bunch of people there together. We have close uh, mutual friends uh, there now. So that, that's good to hear. All of them have left. Um, yeah. Well, Trippany's still there, but, uh, but um, Smith, uh, the, the other Smith, um, he's now in charge of Washington, isn't he? Joseph Smith. Yeah. He went yeah. up and became the dean. Yep. Yep. So, Smart yep. Not yep. Joseph Smith. Uh, um, uh, J- J- not, um, man, he's going to kill me. A lot of Smiths in Utah from, uh, um, Yes, I, 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 but I do. I can, I see, I can see his face right now. I know, I know. Yeah. But it's, it's a Smith. Yeah. How can a Smith in Utah? Go figure. A great guy. I really liked him. He was a, a excellent. Uh, um, I was just talking to Julio Bermudez, who I taught mm-hmm. with and um, directly for a long mm-hmm. time. Uh, now professor at Catholic University. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, a lot of people scattered out of there. It's it's very good research university. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then, so you got, you, then after Utah, right, you decided that, you know, you went and did the, the kind of dry heat, then you did the kind of cool kind of Utah temperate climates, great skiing. And then where next? Well, Utah's a little isolated. Um, and uh, I think we were looking to uh, sort of expand a little bit um, um, our networking in the world. You draw a line a thousand miles across. Utah, Salt Lake's in the middle. There's nothing else. You, you know, you finally can wander up into Moscow, Idaho, or down to Las Vegas, uh, over to um, um, Colorado. But there's really not a lot of, of you know, interaction between architecture uh, theory going on out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're isolated, right? So, so you uh, said, I'm out. <laughs> I just yeah, I want out. But yeah, Kendra, I think, was very interested in uh, getting into administration. Mm-hmm. Um, Utah is a little bit difficult for women. Um, and so she was looking for a similar opportunity and uh, found it in the University of Hartford. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were trying to start up a new school and get into credit of architecture mm-hmm. um, in uh, Hartford, had relatives in Hartford. Uh, it was East Coast. Um, so we decided we'd try that and uh, did it. And Got how, long was that? how long was that for? And we were there about two, three years. Two, uh, three years. You turn over accreditation and you're like, okay, we've done our job. Okay, go back on the road. Yeah, well, you know, we did what we wanted to. Uh, their problem was the university, it's a private university, was awfully underfunded. A private uh, underfunded university in the States? How'd that happen? <laughs> Sorry, man. How could it be? Uh, but some of the privates are very underfunded. 
Hmm. Um, architecture is an expensive major. It costs the university quite a bit of money to run an architecture school. And uh, um, so many of the privates can um, find themselves a little threadbare. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you kind of look at opportunity. Um, and one of the more interesting opportunities, of course, was Ryerson. Okay. And then that was where, again, at Ryerson, you guys came in and it was basically building up on uh, the initial stab at getting accredited. Um, and then basically Kendra came in 2017 with you and you guys I, basically just... Uh, 2007. Sorry? 2007. No it, was, no, it wasn't 2007, was it? Yep. Man, I'm so old that I'm thinking like 2017 is so long ago. Yeah, you're right. Okay, sorry. Yes, 2007, you guys came in and you guys just you know, shook out the house. You guys got all the stuff. I, 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 I remember telling you and Kendra this in a couple of our, you know, meetings where it was like, it was like you had the blessing from the university to make the all-star team. Right. And you guys went all out and you guys started acquiring a lot of profs. And um, in, in that one year you said, look, we're going to get some profs to fill out some niches. We're going to make sure our resources are good. And voila, you, you guys managed to pull together, um, you know, the first real accreditation um, visit to, to our department. I was very happy to be part of that um, as well. And yeah, you guys locked it up. And that's where, Al, you've been doing a lot of the first year. That's where you were kind of setting the foundations for you in first year, correct? Yeah, I mean, I've always enjoyed teaching first year. That's my expertise and that's what I, you know, I'm fascinated with. You lay out the um, sort of direction for, uh, um, a student and um, you can really affect the school. Yeah. Yeah. I know. And, and at the same time though, Al, we both know that if you, if, if you ever have upper year profs, whatever kids do poorly in fourth year or masters or whatever, it goes, Oh, it just like, it just comes down the, the, from the mountain, right? Like basically it's when the fourth years complain, it's like, Oh, they don't know how to draw. Well, then they'll be like, it's the third years. I didn't teach them. And the third years will be like, Oh no, the third year, you know, we did everything we could, but the second years didn't teach them. And the second years will be like, no, no, we taught them as much as we could, but you know what? It's those damn first year profs. They messed it all up. And it's always, you know, us in first year that's like really it's our fault come on man like you it's guys have no part of the semester of first year uh if they don't come out as a, a grizzled 30-year veteran uh everybody complains they i know how to I know. do uh, this or that or this the fact is you know you have to reinforce uh the lessons that they learn and they, students mostly want to learn mm -hmm. Actually, I'm going to say something uh, um, um, that Ryerson students are some of my favorite students to teach. They really mostly care and work hard. Um, you know, there's their problems and their grumpy ones and uh, is any group, but this, this is generally a pretty good, solid country uh, uh, of kids. Yeah. And, and let's, let's jump into that though. When you teach in first year, okay. Yep. I know that you've taught in first year for other institutions. And yep. I think this is an ongoing discussion where I've had, where I've noticed that there are demographic situations, uh, characteristics for Ryerson students. Like we know that a lot of our students, um, for them, they're not maybe the, the first person in their family to go to university. They might be juggling a part-time job. Yep. Uh, they, they might not have the resources to be able to afford the best laptop. They have to wait until second year before they can actually save up. Um, they might have to kind of commute from God knows like two hours away every day to come to school. So given that you've taught first year in, different, in a bunch of different places, would you say that that's kind of a unique thing to Ryerson or have you seen a lot of that all those features in, in the same kind of uh, uh, places that you taught at? Well, I've taught mostly in uh, public universities, which 80% of uh, universities in the United States are public. Most people don't realize that. Um, and, um, you know, so you get a, a range of kids uh, in the university. I think uh, uh, the mix here um, is absolutely fascinating. It's international. Uh, kids have backgrounds from all over the world. Mm -hmm. uh, they get introduced to uh, different cultures. I think it's a fascinating and really worthwhile place to study architecture. Um, it's not like, uh, yeah, I was raised in East Texas, and uh, this is what I've seen over my small town or uh, suburb of Houston. Mm -hmm. and, uh, the world doesn't exist beyond that. 
Well, you know, it's kind of funny you say that because uh, just full disclosure, every for a lot of years, um, Al and I are not only put in first year together, but Al usually ends up teaching beside me. I don't know why you and I end up getting the same. I, I know I, I get my crappy uh, part of the studio, but you, you, you opt in to get that nice, you know, area right beside me. And it's funny because every so often when we're giving, you know, our studio time, I'll hear all the kids gather around, you know, you know, Al looks like, you know, kids sitting on Santa's lap, just like fawning on you, just living. And then you're saying, I, hey, you're from Germany. I remember being in Germany. And then another kid will be like, yeah, I'm from Turkey. And like, you'll be like, oh, you ever been to Taksim Square? I was in Turkey. I taught a studio there. And another kid will be like, oh yeah. And I was in China doing this. And you're like, hey, guess what? I was just in China. Today. So it just seems like, you know, it's, you know, worldwide travel tales with, you know, Uncle Al just sitting, sitting in the corner there. And I'm just like, oh man, kids, Stop paying attention to that. Listen, we got to focus on line weights, right? So I just thought it was interesting to hear you talking about all this international stuff and our students just because you you seem to find that affinity with them, with that world travel that you got in your belt, man. Well, the first thing I, I'm trying to do is say, look, it's a broad world out there and you need to go out and see it. Um, and, uh, you know, you have to be an example for the kids. Um, so if I say that, it's not because I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to brag I'm traveling. I'm just saying it's essential to be an architect, to see the world and understand it. Mm -hmm. Well, and that, that brings me to another point. Like you, when, when, even when um, I first started at Ryerson, you were taking the kids out um, to a lot of places. I mean, you guys also went to uh, Turkey, for example, to do a grad studio. Do you want to talk about like travel? And you know, you're, you're saying that travel is instrumental to the education architect, right? Yep. How, how would you say that you've done that as a prof? Um, you know, you're exactly right. I like to take the students out. Kendra and I did it. Um, I haven't done it in the last couple of years because, you know, we've had some, Kendra had some health problems. But um, um, we love to travel and take them out. I think, uh, um, you know, when we were in Utah, they used to do a trip and they'd go to San Francisco. Hmm. Um, which is complete opposite of um, the environment that you get in um, um, Salt Lake City. Mm -hmm. They were either, uh, all the ki local kids are either horrified or wanted to move there immediately. <laughs> but um, I looked down and realized that, you know, why go to San Francisco for the same price? We can go to Paris. Oh, serious? So, yeah, we took the Aww. whole uh, second year to Paris. Um, it was, because sometimes the airfares were so cheap uh, and everybody got together and we made them, uh, you know, find out about Paris and what to see and uh, hit the ground running. Somebody even got excited that, uh, um, you know, they uh, went a little early and traveled on their own. But the point is that most of them hadn't done a lot of, they'd gone on missions because they were mostly old uh, Latter-day Saint types. Yep. Um, so, but they hadn't really done ser serious travel. Um, and they got there and they said, you know, this trip of a lifetime. Um, and they go and then they suddenly realize, wow, this is fascinating. I love traveling. Um, I'm coming back next year. And they would, and they, they knew they could do it. So just for the record, we are not having all of our second years go to Paris uh, this coming year. So sorry no, to it destroy it. nice if we could. Uh, we probably can't get across the border right now. Wait, dude, I thought Wuhan and uh, I thought Wuhan's looking pretty good these days. <laughs> I think in China, I traveled on the China program it was fantastic. Yeah. So, so you want to talk about that one too? Because uh, so I think, I think when people think of travel for architecture, it's always the typical, okay, let's go to, you know, France, Paris, London, like Rome, right? But I, I always told people that, you know, we, we do that plus more. Like, I mean, other institutions like to say that they got that one place they go to. Well, we got the rest of the damn world, right? So, you know, you, when people hear about, oh, wait, you took people to China for architecture? You know, A, you know, they look at you and just, just those of you guys that don't know, Al, you can probably hear in his voice, he's not the most Chinese heavily accented person. He has no Chinese heritage, at least that, not that I know of, man. Um, so when you have uh, profs that may not necessarily be from parts of the world, what would you still say is the value of the architectural education experience going out to places like that, that aren't on your typical lists of, you know, high profile contemporary architecture hotspots? 
Well, actually, uh, if you really look at history, recent history of China, it is one of the architectural hotspots. There's buildings going up everywhere. The place is just completely rebuilding itself. You go to China and you, you're just amazed. There's you know freeways running everywhere, high rises going up, uh, famous building after famous building mm -hmm. uh, just appearing. Um, plus, culturally, China is a uh, you know are great people. They're wonderful um, to meet, and they're so friendly. And they you know you they haven't seen a lot of Westerners in a lot of places. So they're always, you know, want to photograph you. Oh, tell that story. Tell the story, Al. Tell the story about my people and when they wanted to pose with you, who they thought you were. Come on, tell, you tell me this one all the time, but I think it's not, it's not inappropriate to tell them this story. Not that all Chinese uh, people are racist. Well, well, Come on, know, say it, say I, it. Um, we were in one of the universities and, um, um, in the middle of China and we went down to um, campus and we're wandering through the architecture school. I find the first year class and go in and start meet the professor and I want to see what they're doing. And, um, you know, they're really nice kids. They're all gawking up uh, at me. And, um, and I, you know, I talk to them where I'm from and what I do. And uh, they're all just absolutely staring at me like this, like they're um, absolutely amazed at me. This little girl comes up and says, I'm sorry, professor, they're all staring at you. Um, but I wanted to tell you why. And I said, well, he, I don't know. Uh, is it because I look like Santa Claus? <laughs> and she looks at me and says, oh, no, sir. Uh, it's because you look just like Dumbledore. <laughs> you all read Harry Potter. Uh, see, see, again, my, my people, way to represent. They're like, hey, Santa Claus? Who the hell Santa Claus? No, no, no. You Dumbledore. <laughs> I went, we went down. Students went down there. We were, um, because we were staying on the university, they went down there and partied with the Chinese kids in the dorm. So they said, yeah, they're like four in a dorm, six in a dorm room, you know, mm -hmm. like a submarine with uh, bunk beds. <laughs> I said, oh my God, it could be worse, guys. So when you, now that now we've covered, like you've gone around the world and you've taught all of those kinds of courses and certainly in first year and, and both as, you know, an instructor, but also as a studio master. And you've seen, I, I know that just even my own experience with you from first time teaching in first year all the way to this day, right? We've seen the ramping up of skills, right? Like, I mean, let's look at it. The first years back in our day, it was just drawing things and they had some interesting abilities to sketch out ideas. We had the toy project, which was always fun, but a lot of it was very um, models and conven your conventional program. But then I think uh, within a year, I know that, um, I saw that we started integrating computer usage in, in the studio. And then, you know, we, we've kind of upped the game with respect to not just thinking, making 3D models, but like really good renderings and, and you know, the ability to communicate through, you know, uh, the architectural tools that we got to the point where a lot of our first years are very skilled, right? And, and I think that, you know, do you want to comment on the kind of evolution that we've seen over what amounts to like just a little bit over a decade? Yeah, I, I you know, um, I think the program's doing actually fairly well. Uh, I've been teaching uh, competition studios here, um, and I can't take responsibility for all my students coming in with the skills into the fourth year. Uh, it's they're coming from a lot of different studios, and those guys can consistently win international competitions because of their skills and thinking. Mm -hmm. um, now, what it takes is good quality thinking, ability to um, um, develop a project on your own, and the ability to explain and define it clearly, concisely, using mm -hmm. technology. And our kids can do that. Um, I think that's an advantage. So, yeah, and I mean, so, beyond, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say beyond simply the kind of visualization that we were just talking about, but you talk about the ideas, right? So. What do you mean by the thinking? Because I, I think that for a lot of people, it, it's, it's one of two extremes. Either like people are blessed with this kind of genius ability to come up with really cool ideas, or at the other extreme, you have people that are just really good at Frankensteining and ransacking really cool ideas from other people in architectural websites and magazines. So what, what do you mean by that architectural thinking, man? Um, it's, it's to create a process. It's to be able to um, um, develop and clarify and define an idea. Mm -hmm. um, and not everybody's blessed with that. It's a, uh, 
talent. It's, uh, everybody talks about talent, and it's bounced back as far as Vitruvius, beyond that, that you better have talent in this field um, to be able to do that on your own. Not everybody's can. I used to get students, uh, Georgia Tech was a, a very high roller school, high, high bright kids would come in there. And mm -hmm. I remember these uh, two guys had national merit finalists, um, which is the absolute top rated students in the country for uh, uh, exams. They straight A's in school, uh, board scores were almost perfect, uh, and they were the top of the top. But you get them in studio, and if you don't have a certain way of thinking, it just started to fall apart. Right. And so, um, you know, you, you talk to them and try and get them to think and talk about how to think through a process. And they just kind of go numb because their whole life would be, uh, um, okay, I can read the stuff, I can regurgitate it back, but I can't use it. Well, and that, that brings me to a couple of points. So the, the first thing is, Al, how would you say, like, you've also not just taught studio and, you know, the competition studio or, or various selectives on representation, but you've also taught, say, the history theory courses, right? Yeah. And, and I was wondering if you can just comment on what should students be getting from those history theory courses and, and how does it impact their design work? Well, I teach mostly representation, but representation basically uh, is how you find and explain your work. Um, but if you're talking about the broad base of what they should be having in um, theory and practice, I think one of the things that gets lacking is you've got to put down a good foundation, the history of where it comes from, why they're doing uh, what it is, who are the great uh, um, um, traditions of architecture. Gosh, I knew that at Penn they used to sit around reading Vitruvius like they were reading uh, the Bible, interpreting it and going through every line. Jeez, it's only been out for a few thousand, thousand years, man. Gee. Yeah, um, but it's still, you know, more and more amazingly relevant to today. If you start to analyze it, Alberti, you need to go back and um, take a look at history and be able to put that foundation. Because the problem becomes if you start throwing them, uh, um, you know, postmodern literature um, mm -hmm. without that understanding, they, it, um, they get confused. They start just trying to copy it. They, they think it's sort of a magical text that they could just sort of uh, um, chant. Right. Uh, and something magical will happen uh, without an understanding. It's, it gets to be a bit of imitation without understanding. So then I, I think that, and I'm, well, I, I, I probably, what I'm trying to say is you need to have the, go through the classics and then you build up the position of what's going on today. Well, I, I'm glad you talk about that because I, I, I promised myself with any of my American colleagues, cause you are, uh, you, you are still an American citizen, correct? I'm an American citizen. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> out of my cold dead hands, Vince. So, you know, with all the kind of, situation with the racial injustice protests and all that stuff. And I think that a lot of people have been saying like everything from the name of Ryerson University, maybe we should change it because, you know, this guy founded the kind of basis for the residential school program all the way through to like kind of finding ways to incorporate more indigenous learning into our curriculum. And now we're seeing a lot more across the world of just non-Western traditions, right? Um, and, yeah. and, and I was wondering, how do you see that impacting or coming to fruition in the kind of history, core history theory that we learn now? Because I mean, the conventional canon in architecture is very much the kind of Egyptians, uh, Vitruvius, Palladio kind of model, right? Um, and, and then, yes, we're going to talk about pagodas, and yes, we're going to talk about mud huts, and maybe favelas, right? <laughs> like, how do we, as, as a guy who's got a PhD, who's got a kind of real experience under his belt on teaching these kinds of history theory courses, how would you say we move forward? Well, you can expand on it, uh, but the Western tradition, and this was always argued um, when I was doing theory, um, you know, Western tradition comes from a lot of thinking. I mean, much of this comes out of the Middle East, for example. Mm -hmm. You don't realize that North Africa, um, it's not uh, something that suddenly appeared uh, in the Renaissance out of Rome. Mm -hmm. uh, it was based on quite a lot of thinking. Okay, so going on worldwide. 
Yeah, so I think it's more ensuring that we preserve this kind of global perspective on things, I guess, right? Because as you were describing, like things are interconnected, right? Like people don't just live in one little box and stay there, right? They, they travel, that, that's how cultural exchanges happen. That's how, you know, not, not only in terms of uh, bringing on technologies, languages, and new concepts, but also, as you, you can imagine, architecture. And to, to your point, pulling it full circle, that's what you're kind of doing right now with, with some of the initiatives that you've done with China and Turkey and these other countries, correct? Sure. Yes, that's exactly right, Vince, just as we rehearsed. So, <laughs> so, so I guess, Al, moving forward, though, um, you've also been a part of not only this kind of architecture community, but you also served as supervisor, right? And we, we've just had a couple of meetings this past week um, uh, with, with students, you know, pursuing graduate studies. And, and I think one thing that's really important is you have explicitly told students that, look, it's really important that they get that foundation built, right? Um, and, and just can you describe for us what it is that you as an architecture prof mean by that? Because ostensibly a lot of people are going to say, I want Al as my supervisor or on my committee. And, you know, let's, let's give them a little bit of a taste of it. You are very adamant about making sure people have a strong foundation. What does that mean? Um, they need to have a sense of where they're going. Um, do you know who Dalibar Vesely is? Uh, no. Dalibar Vesely is a very interesting guy, a uh, phenomenologist, uh, architect professor uh, from Cambridge. Um, we used to have dinner with him because he was giving us seminars. And uh, um, so we got to dinner, and uh, one day I asked him, you know, what's the difference between um, your students you're getting in Britain and the U.S. students that are coming through? And he said, you know, they... Uh, the British students have more of a sense of themselves. So they come in and they sit down for the first meeting and they know where they're going and what they're going to do and why they're doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sit there, you know, him uh, is saying that, you know, I'm play devil's advocate with their ideas and, you know, give them suggestions, et cetera. The problem is with the American students, they come in and they would sit down and say, okay, tell me what to do. Right. That's problem. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you haven't started to develop a sense of where you are and uh, what your beliefs in our architecture by that time, you've got a problem. Mm-hmm. So, and so you don't want to have a student that comes in and says, I don't know what to do. I'm waiting for the professor to tell me what to think. Yeah, that's, that's a huge problem right now. So how would you say that a student should really practice that out? Because, I mean, it's not as though in school, in their undergrad, we say, yeah, just think about what it is that you want to do. I think we still, on some levels, say, look, we want you to make a community center, make it have this many square feet, make sure it performs well, right? Like, I mean, that's your conventional architecture project, right? And of course, they, you know, you might take it one way, another student might take it another way. But Al, how would you say that a student should practice this kind of confidence in asserting a position? Well, I think one of it is in the environment we set for them. Um, think about a playground. Um, the architecture school is a giant playground where they're learning to be architects, right? They're playing yep. it. Uh, you don't actually sit down and uh, give them a real building to design first year. It gets expensive if they put up a high rise you know, <laughs> with all the doors four feet high. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we do is allow them to play. Now, it's become absolute free play. They can do whatever they want. Well, that becomes difficult. They have nothing to design against or uh, mm-hmm. judge their work against. Or does it become so restricted that they're told to play only this way um, and follow orders? Uh, then they don't think on their own and learn. So yeah. you need to start to figure out how uh, far out the limits you can set in the studio, uh, how much thinking you're going to uh, make them do on their own uh, to keep them from being lost but um, being able to force them to think on their own, make decisions, to uh, um, um, be able to move forward, gain confidence. So as a, as a student then, like, I mean, you've just presented a lot of what things as profs we could do, but as a student, it's, it's being able to find opportunities within those projects to really say, I'm going to take a position on X, Y, Z, but still kind of follow within the general guidelines. of Yeah, the, I'm actually yeah. do that with the students, you know, um, I always get very nervous about um, faculty to have uh, all the students look really great, but all the projects look the same. 
hey man, that was just a shot right across the bow. No, all my kids aren't exactly the same. And no, I don't run a, I don't run a, I, I know what you're thinking. It's always hilarious when we run, the, when we run the side. But, each other. Uh, like, um, I'd rather have a, uh, um, you know, have it looser where this, uh, the really great students can uh, just expand far on beyond what they thought they could do. Uh, but you're going to, on the other end, you're going to lose the two students and the ones that need to be told exactly what to do. You try and help, but um, mostly um, they should probably be changing majors. Mm-hmm. You know, the one problem, and the interesting thing about Ryerson is we heard them all the way through, um, but most architecture schools in North America don't do that. They'll take an attrition rate. Uh, I know at Georgia Tech, when I taught there, we'd lose 40% uh, the first year. Mm-hmm. Now, the university was super rough and tough. Um, and um, we're happy to fail out, and they, you know, and they did. Um, but you know, taking that forty percent sometimes can be far more humane. Why herd somebody through that really shouldn't be there? Yeah, you're right. But I, I just thought it was interesting though, because if you look at across, like a lot of students that are listening are from Canada, and if you were to say that, they would be completely gassed because in Canada we tend not to have that type of attrition rate, right? And obviously the positive marketing spin would be it's because we take in such good students, they don't drop out. But the reality is that, you know, there are, as you said, there are some people who go into architecture programs and they are kind of herded through and they're forced through, even though it's, you know, not in anyone's best interest that these people become architects, right? How is it that America is able to just simply make the cut and just say like, nope, done, you're out. Like, I mean, especially given the kind of litigious nature of everything and the entitlement that like, I think all, all people are, are, are feeling now where it's like, wait, wait, you can't fail me. I'm, I'm, I, I watched extreme home makeover. I'm going to become an architect, Al, you, you make me an architect. I, I don't deserve to fail. Right. So, so how do you deal with that in America? Like that, that's crazy. Well, one, one fascinating thing is, uh, first of all, I, I would, I really love Canada. There's much more interest in higher education here. They, they take it much more seriously. Um, so the kids are better as students. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, you, you've, uh, you should try some of the uh, more interesting schools in the States. They have a broader range of things. But one thing, uh, uh, when we came in to teach here, we found fascinating was Kendra went to uh, out and uh, did a little research to find out how many of our students were getting jobs after they graduated in the first year. And I remember coming back to my office, just kind of her mouth opening and said, well, uh, what was it? How many? She said, almost 100%. Mm-hmm. There is a shortage of architects in Canada when we came through. And I think there probably still is. Um, so what they're producing uh, really doesn't quite keep up with the demand. So our students can get the jobs. In the States, it doesn't occur like that. Um, there are too many architect students and too many uh, uh, chasing too few jobs. Mm. So um, um, taking it, the worst ones out, um, they're not going to make it anywhere because it's a little bit of, um, okay, you may graduate from this school, but unless your portfolio is really beautiful and uh, you really care and we're really willing to push it, uh, mm. you're not going to get a job anyway. Mm. So the professors can say, well, sometimes we'll just drift some people through. And they do. Okay. Well, see, I think that's really important to underscore the fact that also our students in our program have a threefold kind of career path, right? So that's not just simply you have to be an architect. They, after they get into their fourth year, they can specialize in the project management, building science, or architectural design concentration. So I, I like to think that a lot of our students are also entering the workplace based on the fact that they've gone through the education, but they've also identified niche career more not niche, but like specific career trajectories that might be more appropriate for them, right? Like, I'm yeah. just, that's I've, my say. And I, I remember talking to Kendra about that. She said, yeah, this is really great because what happens is that they go into those other career fields, they have a foundation and an understanding of architecture that people that go through other programs don't have. Yeah. So if I, you're, um, um, you know, building construction or project management, um, you go out to the site, you can talk to the architects, you can understand where they're coming from. Yep, exactly. I, I agree 100% on that. Yeah. 
Um, but, but then, Al, let's just come back to you and some of the research work that you do, because I think that a lot of people, we were just talking about grad studies a second ago, and I thought it would be appropriate to also have you share with everyone, because, again, the students top typically see us in, in the frame of what we teach, right? So, like, if one year you're teaching history, guess what? You are a history theory guy. Vince, if you're teaching structures one guy, you are the structures guy, right? And then the next year, I might be teaching computers. And they think, oh, I, Vince doesn't know jack about structures, but he, man, I got to ask him computer questions, right? So, Al, I think that you've touched on a couple of times that you're very interested in teaching, but you also have a really big stream on representation. So do you care to talk about your research and the types of work yeah, that you're doing? Absolutely. Um, representation comes under history theory and criticism. I'm not a historian. I'm, um, um, Somebody has to teach the history class, and I got picked. Uh, <laughs> into that, uh, you know, I would say Kendra is far more of an historian. She's uh, got a, a better background in it than I do. It's actually, setting up programs, um, but representation really uh, developed out of uh, several areas, uh, um, philosophical areas that are starting to hit architecture. Uh, but you need to give it a name uh, to really talk about. Um, what directly was part of architecture. I think it, it helps it explain to uh, faculty members that are um, maybe a little less uh, broad-based educated, uh, didn't have that theory background. Mm -hmm. um, and it used to be in modernism, um, you would have, the joke was all you had to read is six feet wor um, worth of books six feet wide that was it size matters man yeah um because the, the philosophy and the, uh, um, position was laid out pretty solidly hmm. um so you know when you say uh, representation well they say well it comes from uh, semiotics well it does uh, have a basis but you know semiotics has changed and uh, or it's you know very related to phenomenology uh, yeah, it is, but uh, it's not quite there. Uh, it really has to sit down and say, well, how do we directly take a theoretical position and directly put it in position with architecture? So basically representation is an imitation with a change. It's a change of dimension uh, or a departure in abstraction. And it really comes with uh, creative uh, thinking. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you think about uh, representation, I think a good example comes from mimes. You know, those annoying people with white faces. And, uh, uh, but they uh, offer us a pretty good example of what representation is, and they attempt to demonstrate an idea with a piece missing, uh, for example, for mimes, uh, mm -hmm. the, the sound. Right. So um, hmm. representation... Um, constitutes a stepping away from the original. It involves taking away an element or dimension in abstraction. It can uh, be a concept stated in a new material. Um, it is, uh, um, offers an important factor in finding meaning in architecture, and it gives ideas form, which is pretty important. Uh, we, we've been talking uh, uh, with uh, some of our students about how do they develop ideas. Now, um, Drawings, mm -hmm. which probably most uh, directly relate to it, can be a representation, but not all representation is a uh, drawing. It can be a building, maybe a movie. Oh, you love your models. Come on now. Talk about the models. Uh, and I've been very interested in models, uh, uh, which I think uh, has a long and um, developed history in architecture. Mm -hmm. So Al, would you say that with the, I think this is important to ask, um, with the kind of advanced digital simulation, whether it's VR, augmented reality, uh, hyper-realistic renderings, you know, we're seeing this increasingly come about in, you know, younger and younger years, right? Um, it's become more accessible. Do you see the model as kind of, like the model as we know it, the conventional physical artifact, as you know it disappearing or uh, in light of the kind of advanced representation or because of the advanced fabrication, like the laser cutters, the CNC routers, and 3D printers, do you see that there's going to be a renaissance of sorts for this kind of physical model as a representation in architecture? Yeah, you know, um, uh, when I was uh, studying models, this is about 15, 20 years ago, um, heavily into it, I, I, one of those key issues is um, uh, everybody was divide, 
diving into Cadia and stuff like that. Cadia, um, mm-hmm. you know, like Geary and uh, um, Zaha's and people like that. And one of the things where you sort of bounce around with them is that, you know, um, is, the, is the physical model going to go away? And they, they were said, no, we're getting back into it, actually, um, more and more because uh, it's more direct of the hand of the craft. Um, Etc. And there's a disembodiment that occurs with uh, the digital that you have to be careful of. Not to say that there's anything wrong with digital. Uh, there isn't. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating area. You can see much further, but it has a tendency to create illusion. Mm-hmm. Um, and illusion uh, comes from ill and alludera, uh, which means it's against play. Uh, and you really want to be uh, playing with ideas, alluding. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it, it kills off illusion um, a little bit. So that's why you see in Geary, you know, the uh, crunched up paper and stuff like that. He's uh, um, um, trying to allude to greater ideas through it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I don't think they're going away. Okay. And then I, I think that when, when I don't talk- think digital is going away either. <laughs> Well, yeah, I, I was going to say that like it's it's a very politically safe answer, and I think that you know I, I also agree with you though on on that position. Well, I but agree that, with you. I mean, you know, you, we we argued about this for long and hard with Kendra, and you and I. Mm-hmm. Uh, I. I believe in the digital. I believe they need to be uh, enforced, but they need to be. Uh, um, when you give it to freshmen, you need to uh, get them to understand the difference between the illusions they're creating and illusions, because. Yeah. They can make it look real and beautiful, and it can still be a dumbass idea. Exactly. If it's a if it's a piece of crap and just photorealistic, it's a still a piece of crap. I, I completely understand. Um, but then, can you? While well, I still got you though, because a lot of your publication has been about your your representation and and models, and you know, some some people would be like magicians. What the hell? Demons and monsters. What the hell's going on there? So I'll tell them that you're not just Harry Potter. Tell them that these words mean something relevant. Well, you know, it's interesting. Monsters, for example, um, you know, if you read uh, uh, Friscari's Monsters and Architecture, it's fascinating. Uh, the word comes from um, demonstration, um, the demonstrations of ideas. Uh, and there's a long history of, uh, of buildings and monst- monstrosity. Um, take a look at, a, say, a movie like Godzilla um, mm-hmm. at the end of World War II. Uh, sort of this monster rising out of the nuclear uh, fires out in the Pacific, uh, coming to stomp all over Tur- uh, Tokyo. Uh, very much an analogy uh, to uh, uh, recent uh, problems that the Japanese have been having with the war. Mm-hmm. Um, breathing fire over everything, lighting the city on fire. Or uh, I love invaders from Mars, uh, where, uh, uh, you know, uh, the population of the town was taken over, and the Martians would drill little, um, you know, uh, um, devices in the back of their brains, and they'd all start, uh, you know, marching off in unison as uh, mm-hmm. drones. Uh, you know, and it becomes analogous to the Red Scare. These are monsters that are trying to create an analogy to explain a greater idea. Um, we can't necessarily. It's like the mind. You know, you have to explain greater ideas, but you can't explain it exactly. Mm-hmm. Don't do that. Um, it's like a cathedral trying to explain the liturgy of the Catholic Church yeah. to the population. No, no I, I get that. Yeah, we don't think God is some guy with a big gray beard. Uh, no, that's Al. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, but it, 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 but as an icon to stand in his place that we can understand in scale, uh, it's great. Okay. Well, so, so then, Al, just moving forward, though, beyond the research, let's come back to your fun with studio, because I think that one of the books that you wrote was, of course, talking about the creative process, right, with, with Kendra, right, like, like giving yeah. tips on how you can emerge with ideas. But we know that seeing some of those kids, I mean, even if they did read the book, some kids just couldn't come out with an idea if, if they, you know, if, if their life depended on it, right? So we talked about this whole notion of experience. We talked about like, you know, as much effort as these kids try to do, we, we as instructors try to provide the best infrastructure and supports. But Al, you've taught generations of first year students, man. Help me out. Give me some good stories. Tell me some good tales from the studio side and your experience that have happened, 
you know, give, give me some, some positive feel good stories if you got any from studio or even funny ones just for that matter. When I first started teaching, I was uh, teaching at Texas A&M and they had a new building, a big building, thousand students in it, um, giant concrete atrium um, with big concrete beams going across. Um, Texas soil is a little unstable, so buildings had a tendency to settle, so you know, everybody was worried about that. Um, so um, one day, one of the faculties uh, was walking across the third floor atrium, a little bit like ours, you could see out and see the column uh, beams going across, and he sees a crack, a little mm-hmm. crack. Well, this is a little disconcerting, and uh, the soil and you know, that area is a little bit um, sandy and uh, settles, strangely. So he looked at it, noted it, and goes off. Uh-huh. Comes back a couple of days later and um, looks up and says, oh, the crack's getting a little bigger. Oh, please tell me this doesn't involve dying students or something. <laughs> well, um, you know, and he comes back about, you know, a week later and the crack is bigger. This is real problem. Uh, so he goes up and gets the dean, and the dean comes up, and they're looking at it across the atrium. They can't reach it. They're, they're looking at the thing. And, yeah, cracks get bigger. They're getting really worried. So um, they say, you know, we got to do something about this. So um, they bring in the engineers. They put up a huge scaffolding all the way up to the uh, crack, which is getting a little bigger. Mm-hmm. And the um, guy crawls up to it. And the dean's over on the other side, uh, you know, watching him crawl up to it. And he crawls up and looks at the crack right up next to it and puts his finger on it. And you hear him go, damn, students have been drawing it on. (laughs) Day after day, they'd make it into the crack. And nobody knows how they got up there and did it. But why? Like, was it just because they wanted to get the school shut down or because they were just like it's practicing? the architects, students are evil and creative. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they, they the best are, combination. Yeah, it's a, it's a dangerous combination. Uh, so, so beyond that, though, like, I mean, do you have any advice for kids in first year? Because you're going to be teaching them this fall, right? Well, so, they, you know, that, that book I wrote, even though... And the first thing, uh, I bring out the book, and uh, I, I put in a quote from... Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby. <laughs> and I go, oh, my God. Uh, this is, of course, before Bill Cosby had uh, uh, become rather famous for being a... What was it? He did something bad. Lots of bad, bad stuff. Bad stuff. Mostly Bill Cosby was this beloved guy, but most people don't realize um, he was quite the educator. Um, mm-hmm. He has a uh, PhD from very reputable school, University of uh, Massachusetts, uh, in education. He'd written 14 books. Uh, uh, half of them, more than half, was on education. So I said, and, and I'm, I'm going through the quotes, and I, get, I found this good one from Bill Cassidy. I'm trying to make a book that's accessible for kids uh, coming into architecture school. It's not going to scare them off. It's not going to be uh, um, the, the deepest. Uh, postmodern theory that they're going to have to dive in immediately. Uh, but something to try to explain a little bit clearly what's going on in the studio. Mm-hmm. Um, so that book was about that. Yeah. And and I, I just remember reminding you when, when the whole Bill Cosby thing was coming out, I remember knocking on your office going, hey, Al, man. Yeah, you're coming over and cracking up. I go, yeah. I'm sitting there. But there's no way to take it out. So just ignore the Bill Cosby <laughs> what it is. Yeah, skip the Bill Cosby stuff, focus on that paperclip stuff. It'll be far more useful for you kids. The other thing you always said, uh, we were talking about um, how they learn, uh, you know, and I said, you know, kids might be um, um, drawing on uh, a series of scratch paper, they might be stacking a series of uh, of stools together to see things in new and unusual ways. That's not fairly typical. I mean, I I know that Geary would go out and have lunch with his clients and take of, of the salt cellars and the straws and you know start stacking them up say it's like this it's like that uh, to kind of explain his ideas mm-hmm. so um, trying to say you know there are multiple ways that you can develop uh, uh, and see things further um, um, I think it's useful but you were kind of good stacking chairs well I think it was just a, a, a little problematic I think I'm not sure that our uh, Studios are really the best for building uh, 
huge models at this point. Yeah, yeah, but I also would de de I would deter all students from stacking the furniture in the studios, especially exactly. those yeah, those in Al's section that are right by the atrium. That's just ingredients for danger and death. Yeah. Uh, so, in any event, I wanted to say once again, thank you, Al, for taking the time out to present all these ideas. Like, I mean, the fact that you know we've covered your biography all the way through to like what you teach, how you teach it, and and you know various perspectives on architecture. Um, I, I think a lot of students are very eager to have you because I think the students are going to find out shortly. Uh, who their rosters of faculty will be for first year. So some students will have just drawn and found out, oh, I get Professor Al Smith. Well, there you go, kids. That's Al Smith in a nutshell. He's far more uh, happy and jovial than he sounds right now, uh, even though he's, you know, he's, you, can, you can't really touch him, but dude, he's like, he's like, he's like the jolly Saint Nick, but don't call him Santa, right? Is that, is that the general thing, right? Yeah, I wanted to call you my Al. <laughs> so that, then that's Al. And then, then also, Al, just to not only thank you for the time and sharing the experiences, but thanks for taking a chance on uh, getting me in teaching back in the day many, many years ago. That's a personal thing for me, just to say thanks for you and Kendra helping me out, uh, going through a lot of fun things in the program. And, uh, you know, it's funny, the other day I was just, I, I finally got to see my kids, um, because I, I, the quarantine, I wasn't able to see them for the longest time, but I was able to start seeing them again a little more. Um, I have this little doll that you got for my firstborn kid. Um, and it just, it was funny because we were just, I was putting them to bed. Uh, sorry, I'm using it now for my littlest one now. But when my firstborn kid happened, got this doll from you, we've just passed it down to our, our youngest kid right now. And just the other night I was with him in bed, just trying to put him down, slept while he was trying to go to sleep. And then, just as I was about to get out of bed, I like rolled over and then that sound comes up because that thing, that little doll has like a little bit of a squeaker thing in it. And I was like, God damn it, Al. God damn it. <laughs> um, so, so thank, thanks, for, <laughs> thanks for that one. Um, but again, I, I just want to say thank you very much for all that you've done. Um, and certainly kids, if you guys got Al, uh, you have good old Al to take care of you in first year. All right. So thank you again, Al. Hey, back at you and did over to you too. Okay.